Our show sponsors and your donations make Adventure Rider Radio possible. Without the sponsors, we couldn't do it. So if you're looking for something for your bike, consider shopping the companies that help bring Adventure Rider Radio to you each week for free. The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. We get some great tips from people we've had on this show, and some of the top travel tips we hear are things like don't overplan, ride a bike that you love, take your time, and never give up on a dead man until you've at least tried CPR. Oh wait, that's coming up on today's episode. I'm Jim Martin, this is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us, we got a good one for you. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. And the Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll fill your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system and of course green chili adventure gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding and that has gained them a top reputation for tough reliable gear www.greenchiliadv.com that's www.greenchiliadv.com I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Greg W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schlantz. Brett Tack. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Rush. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. I'm Carol DeBell, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Luke Gelmy's story starts out about year four on a successful career. As- I was an engineer. Used to, I was a chemical engineer before I left all that to, to go ride bikes. That's Luke. He's from Australia, but he doesn't yeah. live there now. Now he lives in France. I'm in France. I'm in France of all places. Well, that's where he is now. Before all this, he was working for a chemical company back home, and he walked out on his lunch break and found the inspiration for a motorcycle adventure in a homeless person. Yeah, he was either homeless or he was just a traveler. You know how you got these travellers that just look like they, they've they let it go, like really let themselves go? It was one of those. Although Luke has a perfectly good bike at home, he abandons that bike yeah. to buy him. A- yeah, it was, it was a toss-up between a, a Royal Enfield and a Triumph, but really it was no contest. I'd- Luke must have taken the recommendations to heart, you know, for motorcycle travel, like not overpacking. I, I was so disorganised that... I've opened my bags on arrival in London and realised that I only packed two pairs of socks. 
And of course, to go along with the Royal Enfield, the most modern navigational equipment. Yeah, literally. I had a little pocket compass and that, that was how Well, you're I probably navigate. picking up by now that he's sort of going by the seat of his pants, shooting from the hip, so to speak. But he goes to France, he ends up going to Africa. And this is where the adventure really kind of took off because... See, when most people go to Africa, they realize, you know, it's the big deal and they prepare for it and they plan and they, they do all the things like getting their paperwork, their international driver's uh, license and their carnet. No, I was, I was already kind of beyond that step. The carnet seemed way too expensive. And I think most people would agree that it's probably not a good idea to pick up strangers in a foreign country when you don't have the right paperwork and you don't have a car name. No, I've, I've got my, my driver's license from back home in Australia and that's it. But as you probably figured it out, yeah, he got a hitchhiker. And he was a complete lunatic. Just a nut. Now, Luke's story doesn't end here. No, we haven't even begun yet. This story gets more twisted the more you dig into it. So I think the best thing to do, we just need to go right back to the start. So I'm Luke Jelmy coming to you from Paris, France, and I'm the writer of Oblivious, the trilogy, the book. Luke, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Good to be here. So you're sitting in France. You're not at Ted Simon's place. No, no, but I've got that on my list of things to go and places to go and see. It's, I, I, couldn't be, I nearly fell off my chair last week when I heard that. What are you doing in France? Uh, a girl dragged me out here. So I, I met a girl in, in back home in Australia and uh, I was actually doing French. It was, it was one of those cliche kind of encounters, meeting the French girl at the French lessons and falling in love and moving to Paris. Very, too cliche. Is that still working out? It is working out. It's been a year and three months now. So we're going strong. It's, it's, it's been a damn good year. So France and love and all that, I mean, it's true. And writing a book at the same time, it's, it's, it's all very picture perfect. Well, now this is completely different to what your life was before your motorcycle <laughs> trip. Can you talk about what your life used to be like? So I, I started out as a, a chemical engineer or a process engineer in Australia. And then it was a plum job. It was a good job. But then I quit all that and uh, started touring on a Royal Enfield of all motorbikes, which was, let's be honest, a, a weird choice. And um, I ended up riding all the way from London down to Cape Town. It's 30-odd uh, thousand kilometres, so what would that be, about 20,000 miles um, on a Royal Enfield through, through West Africa, which is, you know, not the easiest part of Africa, I guess. Well, back when you're working as a chemical engineer, what makes the jump to motorcycle adventure? I mean, what, what is the catalyst here? Well, speaking of Ted Simon, he's, he's got a, a big role to play in this. So like, like everyone who's read Ted's works, it's, um, that, that, that's a huge inspiration. And then um, on top of that was Long Way Down and Long Way Around, which is just fodder for anyone who's keen on on doing this sort of motorbike tour. So I was kind of primed up on those two. And um, I'd, I'd, done, I'd done some tours through the Himalayas up in, in northern India on, on an Enfield before. And I, I, thought, I thought Enfields were going to be crap before I went and did the India trip. 
And I, I completely fell in love, like head over heels in love with the Enfield. Even though I had a BMW 800GS back home, I just wanted one of these bikes. I, I, I was completely besotted by it. And um, so, yeah, when I ended up with, with kind of all of that kind of floating around, I it was the weirdest encounter that actually kicked it all off and, and really pushed it, pushed me into this. It was, I, I was happy in my job and I was, I was taking a lunch break and uh, I, I saw this bum, he was a hobo on a, um, on a park bench and he's just sitting there kind of taking the air and just enjoying his day. And it was a beautiful sun shining day. I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm, here I am in the sky, what I used to call the sky prison or the bad place, the job. And um, here's this guy out here just enjoying the sunshine. And, and I couldn't tell if he was a traveler or not. He had this huge backpack on him. And I'm like, well, that makes him look like a backpacker, but he's really just too filthy to be a, a traveler. He's got to be homeless. And I really couldn't put my finger on it. But all I could put my finger on was that he was having a better day than I was. And so in that kind of lightning bolt of, of kind of getting hit between the eyes with that, I've gone, well, why, why, don't, why wouldn't I switch places with him? And so I've, I've, I've gone back to work and, and booked a one-way ticket to London just like that. Like in the, the moment I got back to work, just bang, one-way ticket to London. And then it kind of all unraveled from there. Well, this is interesting because it has a lot um... – a lot of the earmarks of making huge decisions and somebody who's, who uh, knows how to make a decision, the first thing you got to do is take action with it, right? You've got to do something. You've got to book that ticket yeah. and sort of commit yourself to it. But, but hang on, back up. So you, you see a, a guy that you think is a bum. You said at the start of this, you said, <laughs> yes. you, said you were happy in your job. Then you called it the sky prison. I mean, there, there's some sort of controversy there. Clearly, there was some sort of thought in the back of your mind that this isn't the life for you. It, it, there was definitely that nagging kind of persistent, um, that, that feeling, that feeling in your gut, which is, especially I was, I was 26 at the time and I was, I kind of had that feeling that if I didn't quit this job now, this job that I've, I've worked pretty hard to get this job. It was, it was, it was my dream job in fact. And, um, I kind of thought if, and I'd been in it for four years now, so I had a feeling for what it was like. And, and all that I could see is the next logical step, the next logical hurdle was retirement. Like, like flash forward 40 years and, and I get to retire and that's it. Like, is that, is that what life's going to be now? And I think everyone's kind of had that kind of, not an existential crisis, but a, a kind of working crisis where you're like, God, is this it for the rest of my life? And I thought, if, if I'm going to take the break, now is the ideal time. Otherwise, I'm going to do something really stupid like buy a house or get a girlfriend or something like that. Something that, you know, will stop me from being able to go and have these huge adventures and do some really reckless stuff. So, so I kind of did it on this kind of terror that I, won't, I might not get this chance again. You know what I mean? Well, most people would look at the guy and have those thoughts that you had. I mean, a lot of people would do that same thing, but then they would say, okay, it's now a time to go back to work. <laughs> and they would grab yeah, their lunch bag yeah. and they'd go back to work and maybe go do something on the weekend, but not yeah. book a ticket and walk out on their job. Or maybe they needed the hobo. I think, I think they're waiting for their hobo slash traveler to come along and kind of 
really make them realize how good a simple life can be sitting in front of a lake on a beautiful sunny day with all all of your possessions in a bag next to you and just enjoying a, a lovely summer's day and go, geez, why can't I do that? And you kind of go, oh, I can do that. And bang, off, off it all goes. Well, that hobo, when you saw him sitting there in the backpack and the filth, you saw in it what you wanted to see, really, because, I mean, what you, <laughs> yes. what you didn't see is when you walked away, the fact that he's going to be spending the night there. I mean, if he was really a hobo, yes. that he's going to be looking oh, for yeah. food, that he doesn't have a credit card, that he can't go buy a motorcycle, and he's not going anywhere, really, unless he can somehow get a ride. So you sort of saw in it what you wanted to see. That's true. That's true. There was definitely a Rorschach plot of... Uh, you know, what do you see? And someone sees a butterfly and somebody else sees, you know, whatever. But, uh, yeah, I, I saw, I saw the dream. I looked at a hobo and, and saw the dream. Which <laughs> the isn't dream bad life. though, is it? I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's really sort of, I guess you're the guy that's saying the glass is half full. Or, or, or just saying that the glass would be more fun if it wasn't doing a job. Like if, if it was just a like a glass that didn't have you know, have to be half empty or half full. It could just be and do nothing and be happy to be a glass. I don't know. It, it, it gets quite philosophical if you want to dig right down to it. So did you do what, you know, you clearly didn't do what most people would have done, I think, wake up the next morning and go, oh, that's just a mistake. Well, it would have been a, mis- a very expensive mistake to make because, you know, hard to hard to reverse a one-way ticket. Mm. I, was, I was in, it was kind of in for a penny, in for a pound. And um, I, I was freaking out about how I was going to make make it all work, that I was going to be able to quit everything and leave. But it was easy. It was really frightfully easy to just to take off in the space of about six months because I, I, I thought six months would be enough time for me to do all the things I needed to do. It just all kind of dissolved into this neat sort of messy pile and um, could sort of, you know, start a new game with it. It was, I, I couldn't believe how, qu- A, how quickly it came around and, and B, how just easy it was. Like, I, I thought it'd be a, a, a real drama, but it just wasn't. It was so simple. What do you mean easy? Easy as in you kind of blink and, and you've broken up with the girlfriend, you've, 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 um, you've canned the rent, You've moved out of the house. You've quit your job. You, you've done all the big things, and then you find yourself kind of sitting in a plane, and you're ready to go. And you're like, "Holy cow! Like, how did that happen so quick? Like, how did I end up in the plane? Like, this is actually happening. Here we go." It just kind of it, it happens in a twinkling of an eye. It it, it's, it really does fall apart quite quickly. But it, and and that was quite empowering. Like. It was so easy to just have a complete break from that life and start a new one. You left a BMW F800 GS at home. You, you, like, I did. You... My dad thought I was insane. <laughs> <laughs> because you told him you wanted to go buy a Royal Enfield? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a toss-up between a, a Royal Enfield and a Triumph, but really it was no contest. I'd, since I'd, I'd ridden that, that Enfield in the Himalayas, I was hooked, completely hooked. You get to England. You really don't have much of a plan here at all. What, what is your plan? No. no. So the, the, the plan was just to land and, and take it from there. Like I, to the point, I, I was so disorganized that 
I've opened my bags on arrival in London and realised that I only packed two pairs of socks. Like <laughs> I, was, I was not getting too far ahead of myself. I, I couldn't even, you know, have, have socks organised. So I, 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 there was no chance of me having anything else organised. So I kind of just rolled with the punches and what ended up happening was I, ended, I did end up getting a, a Royal Enfield. I, I got the Battle Green version. It's a stunning motorbike. I just... I can't tell you how gorgeous this motorbike is and it sounds even better than it looks. So I was thrilled. I was the happiest man in the world as I was rolling out of that dealership. And then I've, I've basically just pointed a compass north and just followed the nose and um, I ended up doing a whole lap of England and Scotland before I knew it. What do you mean pointed the compass north? You mean, are you saying literally you just followed? Yeah, literally. I had a little pocket compass and that, that was how I navigated. So I would I would look at a map in, in the mornings and kind of pick a vague direction of where I'd like to go, like where I'd like to end up at the end of the day. And then I would just, you know, at every crossroads, I would pull out a pocket compass, just this tiny little pocket compass, and, you know, check my bearing and um, while I'm still rolling along the road and go, okay, do I turn left or do I turn right or keep going straight on? And it, it was wonderful because... it was just such a random experience and without knowing what was coming up during the day, what I was going to be riding through, it left room to kind of, for a lot of surprise, for a lot of surprise and delight. So, um, which is really in, in many ways what we live for, right? Come to the end of the day, you, you just look for a place to stay and stay anywhere. Yeah, the, the UK and and particularly England was a piece of cake for that because everywhere you go, there, there'll always be somewhere to camp, there'll always be somewhere uh, or even a hostel, hotel, somewhere cheap. There, there's always options, always food options. It really required zero planning. And um, you'd end up in these lovely sort of quaint villages or you'd end up in the middle of nowhere within a little campment with green rolling hills and stone walls. It was just wonderful. I loved the UK. And were you working on a budget? Do you figure you have so much to spend each day? Uh, not, not really. Um, that, that was also part of the kind of non-planning sort of thing. Everything was kind of cheap. Um, basically, all you're spending money on is, is accommodation and food and petrol. So it, it, it wasn't that bad. And it, if, if you get in a good exchange rate, things can be quite good. And how was the bike in that, in that first part? Were you going around England? <laughs> I've got to be honest, it was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> does the Royal Enfield come with a really complete toolkit right off the bat? It, it doesn't. It's, it's got this kind of tiny little toolkit that really just doesn't pass muster. It's, it's got tire irons, which we'll, we'll get to later, but the tire irons are just like paddle pop sticks. It's, it, it could really use a, a, a bit better on the, the tools, but c- coming out of the dealership, I was very, very happy. And then a few hundred clicks down the road, I was very, very unhappy because the red engine warning light had already came on. <laughs> well, hang on. To be fair now, your F800 came with what? I think there's like four tools that are underneath the seat, uh, a plastic handle with a, a double screwdriver and maybe a, a couple of wrenches or something like that. And you paid a That's lot more true. money for your F800 than you did for the Royal Enfield. But you know what the difference is? What's that? 
you never, ever, ever see the red engine warning light on an F800 GS. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even sure they have one. They haven't bothered. The Germans have been so efficient that they're like, oh, we don't need that because it never comes on. But any true adventure is all about the stops that you make and the interaction with the locals, right? I mean, that's really what makes your adventure. And an F800, it's, it's likely not going to break down. It's not going to be adventurous. The Royal Enfield, that's yeah. where it's at. I mean, I can see why you went with this. Yeah, no one ever wants to hear a story about that time that everything went perfectly. Of course. No one ever wants to hear that story. No one ever wants to read that book. Uh, you're the most boring guy at the party when you're talking about the time that everything went well. When you're talking about, you know, the time that you thought you were going to die in the Congo, now that's a story that people want to listen to. <laughs> and was that part of the attraction to the Royal Enfield right off the bat, is, is knowing that this thing is not going to be as reliable, let's just say, as your, your BMW? Not at all. Uh... I mean, there's a romantic appeal, isn't there? There is. I think it's the romantic appeal rather than the this is going to suck and I kind of like that. It wasn't a masochistic kind of tendency. It was – but but you do make a good point because the BMW is just very, very German. And and I think I did want a bit of a break from that because it's so clinical that it's hard to – it's hard to see it as anything other than a machine. It doesn't really have any sort of human personable qualities to it. It's infallible and just invincible and bulletproof. And I was kind of going for, as you say, something a bit more romantic than that. And I mean, I love the look of the Royal Enfield. I mean, it is a, oh, a, just such a cool looking bike. So a lot of fun. You went around England, and then what happens then? And you weren't planning. Like you didn't have a, you didn't have really time frame. You mentioned six months, but you didn't really have a direction. You didn't know after England you're going to head anywhere else. No, no. So as as far as I, I, I was just looking at the next day. So I, I had no plans at all, and and I ended up getting chased out of the UK by the weather. So winter was coming and, um, and I just had to get away from it. Riding, riding in the rain is the pits. So I was kind of like a goose heading south for the winter. Where'd you go? I, I skipped the channel over into France and immediately regretted it. Um, it was, I, I didn't believe that you could get a culture shock from a jump so small, but I immediately wanted to go back to the UK. I... I, I, France, even just getting petrol in France was an ordeal because it's like, what do you put into your bike? Do you put in essence or do you put in gas oil? And it's like, oh, even just that decision with, with no French, whatever, like I had zero French. Um, and, and, and the people who I was trying to talk to, to figure it out, they also had no French. And so what do you put in? The one that sounds like a bit like gas, like gas oil or essence, which sounds more like a perfume. The people you talk to, what do you mean? So you go and try and talk to the French and try and figure out from them, like, which is it? Is it gas oil? Well, you mean they have no English. Like, yeah, yeah. So they're they're just gibbering on in French and that's no good to you. So (laughs) you're kind of stuck with tossing a coin to which petrol you're going to put into your, into your bike. And it's, it was a, I just wanted to go straight back to the UK where everything made sense again. So do you flee France at that point? Well, I, I actually did because only only for the novelty reasons. So Belgium was 20 kilometers to the east where, of where I landed in France. And I thought, oh, come on, I've, I've got I've to go do the whole, 
you know, three countries in one day just to tick that box. So I went to Belgium and had some beers and waffles and then jumped back into France again. But you don't spend the winter in France, though. No, no, God, no. I, I kept kind of just, just outrunning the um, the rain heading south, and I've ended up, I've ended up all the way in the south of Spain, and I've kind of, and this is where the adventure really kind of took off because well, before now, let's be honest, it wasn't really an adventure; it was just kind of a tour. But I'd, I'd run out of Europe to escape south to. And so I was like, okay, I, I guess I'll jump the Gibraltar Strait and go to Morocco. Like that was the next obvious step. That's a big deal. I mean, going to it Africa. It is a big I mean, deal. It's, it's the real thing there. So you have to get a carne and you have to get all your ducks in order. Did you do all that? Uh, <laughs> no, I was, I was already kind of beyond that step. The carne seemed way too expensive and, um, and it was just going to be a headache to get my hands on one. So I've, I've kind of gone and thought I could wing it, um, which I don't, I don't think many people do that in West Africa. No, I, I mean, I, I, yeah, it's, it's, not a, it's not an approach to Africa you hear very much. Usually, you know, people look at that and say, okay, this is serious and I've got to, I've got to do all the things I need to do before I go. But you just, you just yes. wing it. You get on the ferry, you get off at Morocco. Morocco, I guess, was pretty easy for you. Well, it was, it was an easy start. Yeah. So that was, it was kind of like dipping a toe. It was still a massive culture shock on the, the first move there. But as a, as far as border crossings go, it's hard to get much simpler than Morocco, but I was still panicking, like not panicking, but I was just terrified that, you know, you're going to end up in one of these nightmarish border crossing situations that you hear so much about. And especially given that I had no French and, you know, even less Arabic, it's like, what chance do I stand of being able to successfully negotiate one of these border crossings? It's just not going to happen. And you don't have your carnet. You have no international driver's license. No, I've, I've got my, my driver's license from back home in Australia, and that's it. That, that and a set of registration papers. We're going to take a fast 40-second break, and then we're going to be back and talk about Luke's Hitchhiker. I've found through experience that larger foot pegs from IMS products will definitely change your ride. Better control while standing, better contact between your foot and your boots. It's really what I consider to be one of the best improvements that I've made to my bike, wider foot pegs. IMS makes a full line of foot pegs for us adventure riders, but the ones I want you to look at today are the ADV1 and ADV2 pegs. These pegs are huge. And you know what? Advanced riders seem to love them. You be the judge. Try them out. Have a look at what they've got. The ADV1 and the ADV2 peg at IMS Products. That's www.imsproducts.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio so they know it's working for them. www.imsproducts.com. Did you pick up a hitchhiker? I did. I did pick up a hitchhiker and, and he's got, he's a lot of the reason why I actually ended up having any sort of confidence in going to West Africa. So this, this guy that I met, it was, he was an Australian that I met in Barcelona and he was a complete lunatic, just a nut. And, um, he, he'd hitchhiked all the way up the East coast of Africa. And I just, I couldn't believe that. I, I couldn't believe that that could be done. And he was just so calm about everything, just this kind of calm, 
maniac and it's like I want this guy on the bike when you know the proverbial hits the fan um this is the guy you want in your corner so I said you know where where were you thinking of going next and he said oh I was thinking of you know heading down to West Africa and I was like done don't hitchhike get on the back of the motorbike with me and the two of us ended up riding together for what would it have been about 2,000 miles or 3,000 kilometers together on the Enfield, full luggage and everything, all the way to Dakar. Just talk about meeting this guy. <laughs> so it, it happened over a few beers, just in a in a crappy Barcelona hostel, and within minutes he'd become my hero. And you you really had to kind of pull the stories out of him because. He, he wasn't kind of advertising it to everyone. He, he was this very kind of quiet, very mild-mannered guy that you wouldn't expect would have the kind of guts to be able to, you know, go and do all that kind of stuff solo. But by the end of the night, with a few more beers, he's telling me stories about how he got malaria and typhoid at the same time in eastern DRC on a lake that he wasn't supposed to be on, and they've thrown him out the back of the boat with a rope to, you know just be sick <laughs> in the water. And I'm like, that is amazing. Like, what a story. And I, I wanted to have similar, not similar experiences. I never wanted to experience that. But I wanted to have stories that you could tell your grandkids about, you know, like that time that you got malaria and typhoid in the Congo. Like, who gets to say that sort of stuff? He was the essence of adventure, the real thing you came across. Yeah, and he was so nonplussed by it all. Like, he didn't think it was a big deal. And I'm like, but let me get this straight. You were dying. He's like, yeah, if I, if I hadn't have found a hospital within, like, another day, I probably would have died. But, but he'd follow that up with, you know, it's, it's really curious to, to feel what it feels like to be dying. And I'm like, holy crap, this guy's insane. And I'm like, I kind of want to be like that, like... This, this windswept and interesting traveler was, was sort of exactly what I was going for. And he, with his experience, he really presented me with a chance to go and capture that and try and, you know, kick that off for myself. What was his name? His name was Ben. Ben the Wild Australian. <laughs> and what's Ben's story? How long has he been on the road? Well, he, he flew into, so in the same way that I flew into London, he flew into South Africa. So, you know, what a place to start. Like, let's throw yourself into straight into Africa. And he kind of had the same modus operandi that I had where he'd kind of just make it up as he went along. But, but he had no kind of, he had no interest in end fields or in motorbikes at all. And um, so his, his way of traveling around was sort of the by any means kind of way of traveling and, and, I think for him that made for a much more varied and um, an interesting experience. Like, and and he, it was quite a power. Like listening to his stories, it was quite a powerful way to travel because you know if if the car that you're in breaks down, that's someone else's problem. If my motorbike breaks down, it's my problem. Like that's it's something I've got to deal with. It's baggage that I've got. But he was an extremely lightweight and uh, very flexible traveler. It was. Um, it was, it was impressive to watch him operate. So in the morning when he gets onto the back of your bike, are you still sure that you're doing the right thing? 
Uh, no, I, I was, I was sure that I was making maybe the biggest mistake of my life. And I was pretty sure that I might not even have the chance to get that far because I was also quite sure that my bike was going to get stolen day one in Morocco. So you've, you've got this guy on the back of your bike off you head. What's it like to ride with this stranger? Uh, he was, he was the perfect Pillion. Um, he would, because, and, and it was something to do with the the Enfield as well, because the Enfield kind of had no performance to start with, and so I didn't really notice at all that we'd lost any performance. So, so the bike was kind of even with double the luggage and double the people, double the weight. It, the bike didn't really do anything, but then he himself, he would just be still as a statue, like. And he wouldn't make any noise and he wouldn't demand any breaks. And honestly, I would forget that he was there and start singing. <laughs> and, and, and then and I'd get halfway through a verse of, of something embarrassing that I probably really shouldn't be singing. And, um, and, and then I'd kind of go, oh, crap, Ben's on the back and he's been listening to all of this. <laughs> and Ben is terrified. Is that why he's sitting so still? No, no, he was he he was just this guy, you know that quiet guy that sits in the corner is just happy to observe. You know how they say when you walk into a bar it's not the loud guy you should be scared of, it's the quiet guy in the back. He was that quiet guy, so um he he was the most easygoing person I've probably ever met. Like he would be up for anything and Honestly, he just seemed bored by all of it. Like even when we're doing the craziest of crazy stuff, he was just kind of nonplussed. There was something to watch. Is that why you say he's mad as a hatter? Well, yeah, because he was kind of that quiet psychopath. Like the, <laughs> like it's it's abnormal to be so calm in a situation that is so the situations that we'd kind of get ourselves in, which are so completely insane he would kind of just take it all in his stride while i'm just losing my mind kind of thing what did he do for you what, what did you learn what did you get from having been on the back of your bike for 2000 miles well he he kind of busted my my two major barriers were gone on day one so my my first biggest most major concern was what the heck am i going to eat because I'm thinking, you know, how am I going to buy like crackers or something, you know, some dry food for all of the time I'm going to be spending in Africa? Because there's no way that I'm going to be eating the food here. And then on day one, he it, it was it was dinner time on, on the first day in Tangier in Morocco. And he found the worst, like the worst street food vendor in all of Tangier. He was making these meat sandwiches that were just out in the open, unchilled meat, red meat, with all of these vegetables right next to the meat, covered in water. It was a nightmare. It was my version of a nightmare. And he's ordered a sandwich. I thought he was joking. I, it was so bad <laughs> that I, I thought that he was just really putting on a really elaborate joke. And then he starts eating the sandwich and I'm like, okay, if he's, if he's going to do this, I'm going to have to start, you know, monkey see, monkey do. I'm going to have to kind of make this guy my Mr. Miyagi. He's going to have to be 
the Yoda to my Skywalker. I'm going to have to learn from this guy and, you know, start to push my boundaries of what I think is acceptable. And so I ordered a sandwich as well and nothing bad happened. Like it was a delicious, delicious sandwich and, and it didn't kill me. And so even after that, like first day, oh, and the, the second thing was I was terrified that the Enfield was going to get stolen. I was certain it was going to get nicked. And the whole time that we spent at the hostel that first day, I was kind of on a hair trigger when it came to listening for things outside from where the Enfield was parked because I was sure that somebody was, you know, shaping up to steal my bike. And he got to the point where he was so angry at seeing me go to the window over and over again that he's kind of stopped me dead and and given me the whole, if you go and do that one more time, I'm going to drop you kind of talk. Like, <laughs> cut it out. You're You're not going to be watching your motorbike for the whole rest of Africa or however long you're going to stay here for. So stop it. Like, stop it right now. Let's kill this. And the next, the next day I had neither food poisoning and I didn't have my motorbike stolen. So it was kind of, he, and I'm not sure I would have been able to do either of those if he wasn't there. I think I still would have been the guy checking on the motorbike and eating rice crackers for the whole of the trip. So it would have been different without him. He really pushed the boundaries of, or helped me to push my boundaries just by watching him do what he does. So you think with just paranoia, your, your bike wasn't going to get stolen? Oh, no, I, I think, well, now from, from the perspective I look at now, I think it was paranoia, but I think that it's justified based on what we think when we think of Africa, mm. which, you- is, which is very different to what it actually is like. By, by the end of Africa, uh, or by the middle, not, not, much, not much time later than after Morocco, and, and for the whole rest of the trip, I would happily leave my motorbike practically anywhere. And that would be with all of my stuff on it, with, with everything I own on it, I'd happily leave it on the street and walk into a hotel and, and leave it out in the street for as long as I had to and then come back and, and be quite confident that nothing's going to go missing, which is crazy. Yeah, which it is. is. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's so counterintuitive. Yeah, and it, it, it was so completely separate to this image that I had, which was all my stuff is going to get stolen and I'm going to have to be constantly on guard. And it makes you wonder, like, where do we get this idea from? And that said, I'm, I'm sure there are people who have, who have done West Africa and have had the absolute inverse experience that I've had. Like, they have had the nightmare. And um, I think it's a case of we hear a lot more of those stories because, like I said, no one wants to hear the, time, the story about the time everything went well and nothing was stolen and you know, everything went fine and there was no food poisoning involved. Everyone wants to hear the stories about that time that you were sick and then you got your bike stolen and uh, were left stranded in the Sahara Desert or something like that. Like, that's a good story. No one wants to hear about the time everything went well. So I think in the end, we end up getting this kind of, from all the stories that get told, we end up getting this kind of image of Africa as this terrifying, scary, dangerous place. When it, it can be, but it's not. You got to Dakar and you decided to, to split with Ben. What happened? Yeah, it, we'd, we'd had an interesting few weeks. So um, I'd, I'd been hanging out in Dakar for a very, very long time trying to get a, a visa card and not a visa like passport visa, but visa as in credit card visa card sent over from Australia because who knew this? 
Uh, MasterCard doesn't really work anywhere in West Africa. Did you know that? I've heard that, yeah. Yeah, I that that totally blindsided me. So yeah, Visa seems to be um, the, the the card that you can count on everywhere. Yeah, yeah, and I, I kind of assumed that they would both do the same thing. Um, and to kind of get to by the time I got to um, Mauritania, which is which is in the Sahara, I I was getting rejected at all of the credit card, all of the the ATM machines, and I was quickly running out of cash. And if that's another thing, if Ben wasn't there to kind of keep me propped up with his Visa card, which, by the way, he was totally thrilled about, um, he it would have. I'm not sure how I would have handled that. Um, we he he kind of got me. He dug me out of out of a mess a number of times. But anyway, so I'm I'm getting a, a credit card sent over to Dakar from Australia, and the day that it arrives. We, we celebrate and go out to the beach and go surfing. And I've, I've just activated the card. It's ready to go. It actually works. I've gone and tested it. Happy days. And then we get home. We get back home. When I say home, back to the hotel in Dakar. And we've been cleaned out. We've, <sighs> we've had just it couldn't have happened on a worse day. Just everything is gone, gone. So my wallet's gone. I, I just changed $1,000 worth of Mauritanian gear over into US dollars. Gone. My, all my paperwork, gone. That new, that credit card that I'd waited like two or three weeks for, boof, gone. It, 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 it just, it, it killed me. It killed me. Ben, I don't know how he got away with this, but Ben had his Walkman stolen. That was it. He had his crappy little Walkman that he loved to bits, but that got stolen and the rest of his stuff got left behind. In the meantime, I got cleaned out. Anyway. Why did they focus on your gear and not his? I have no idea. Because you worried. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was that. It's it's God trying to teach me to just, you know, calm it down a bit. You've got nothing to be scared of. Oh, it was, that that was a bad week and... um, it actually ended up working out really, really well for Ben because while we waited for another two weeks to get it, oh, that was a whole nother mess just to, to – I had to call up back in Australia over the internet to cancel the credit card that I just got activated. It was the weirdest conversation you can imagine. Um, and then we've ended up – so Ben ended up meeting – cutting a very long story short – in the additional time that I'm waiting for the visa card, the second visa card to come along, Ben met a girl in Dakar. Ben's gone. Ben's gone. So that was the reason. By the time I got the visa card, I was ready to go. Like I, I wanted, I'd had quite enough of Dakar and I was ready to go. Ben still wanted to stay. And in, in many ways it kind of worked because after 3,000 kilometers of, of riding together and basically spending 24 hours a day, seven days a week in each other's pockets, we were kind of done on that partnership. And I was kind of getting to the point where I was ready to take the training wheels off and, you know, really go at it, go at it solo. I was, I was at the point where I felt like I could take it on myself, which was a big deal for me. And I, I was craving it. I'd gotten to that point where I really wanted to just have me in the bike now. And what's your first experience as you head off on your own? Uh, honestly, it, it was almost the same because he was such an easy pillion. I, I hardly noticed the difference. It was when 
things started to get further and further on. So in, in places like Nigeria and places like Liberia and Sierra Leone that I really started to feel the pinch of, you know, there's, there's no one bailing me out anymore. I'm, I'm really on my own here. All of a sudden you're on your own. You got to worry about your bike and your gear and your paperwork. Yeah. And, and you feel all of that. You feel, especially as, as you start to ride out into more and more remote places where it, it's not just you riding solo, but you're the only person within like anywhere of, of, of that location that you're in. You just, you'd get to these really, really remote places where that's when you really start to feel like all the what ifs in your brain start to go into this overdrive of, you know, if, if you end up having a cataclysmic engine failure right here, it's going to be, you know, touch and go. What are you carrying with you? Do you have a, a cell phone or, or a satellite phone or a satellite communicator or anything like that? Nothing like that. So I had my, I had my phone stolen. And, uh, that was, that was actually a really fun night. We'd, um, that, and that was again, my own stupid fault. So I met a girl and, and we'll keep this G rated, PG rated maybe, or maybe a bit more than that. Anyway, met this girl on a beach bar in Barcelona and we've gone into the water and I've left my jeans on the sand. Let's just say that. I'm following. Right. <laughs> okay. You're, okay. Good. <laughs> and when I get back to my jeans on the sand, my mobile phone is gone. My new mobile phone that I just bought because I drowned my old iPhone in a raging rainstorm in Andorra. I, I that's which is a whole different story. But I just replaced that phone that that had died with this brand new, nice big phone. That one got stolen. I kind of went, that's it. I'm sick of phones. I don't really need them. I'm just having them for this kind of protection kind of safety net. And from then on, I, I, I didn't have a phone for practically all of Africa. But the phone being gone when you left your, your pants on the beach, that's not really a big surprise, is it? It, it isn't. It, but it was because we had people watching guard over the jeans. Oh, I see. Right? Like how they're, they're very slick in Barcelona. They don't muck around. They, they know their craft. So I, I still don't know how they pickpocket it. So, <laughs> you don't know how they pickpocketed your jeans? I, 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 I have no idea. Not with two people standing over them watching. Oh, just I thought maybe them. these people weren't watching. So you, these people were actually watching your jeans and they still managed, somebody still managed to get in there and get your, your phone out. I guess they're watching you. Yeah, I, 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 they, they must have been watching us like a hawk and, and looking for the right time to get get to the jeans. Um, they're, they're, they're slick operators in Barcelona. You got to be, you got to be careful or not just be, just don't be stupid. Don't get your teeth knocked out. Don't get your phone stolen. Keep your jeans on. You'll be fine. <laughs> Keep your jeans on. It all what? sounds awful, doesn't it? But it was actually, it was awesome. Like there's a lot of horror stories because those are the ones that are fun to tell. But the the real story out of Africa is you, it, it's wonderful. It really is wonderful traveling, it, especially West Africa, which is the side that no one really wants to do. What was wonderful about it? Everything. Just the, the people are f just fat. You, you've, never, you've never experienced a more genuine hospitality. Um, the people are just wonderful, especially if you, you try to speak some of the language. They, they, they love you for it. And 
they're so curious and, and, and wonderful to talk to. And the food, the food, once, once you get over the fact that this isn't the height of hygiene, you, you can really enjoy the food for what it is. And it's amazing. In Liberia, you had an experience with food. <laughs> see, see we're, going, we're going back to horror stories again, aren't we? It, it's, it's unavoidable, yes. I'd, um, this, I'd, I really should have known better by the time I got to Liberia that you really can't eat fish with your hands after touching the money and expect to get away with it without any trouble. And let's... Uh, I, I, I paid for my sins in a massive way in Liberia. I was crook for about three or four days straight. And and what was worse is that I was at the, the and this is going to sound really bad as well, I, I was stuck in a brothel while I was sick, which which is a genuine accommodation option in Liberia when all of the other accommodation options won't let you park your motorbike inside and a brothel will, you take the brothel. You take the brothel every time. After traveling with Ben and, and now being on your own, were you a changed person at this point? Did you feel like you were a different person than the guy that got off the plane in the UK to buy the Royal Enfield? Yeah, definitely. Um, to, to the point where I couldn't recognize my old ways of thinking about, especially thinking about Africa. But yeah, I was, I'd, I'd become quite a hard, not a hardened guy. Like I could still have fun when I wanted to have fun. Um, and I, I did, I was having fun all the time, but when it came to kind of dealing with police and dealing with officials and dealing with, you know, any kind of situation where you can come into any sort of conflict, I was the most, I, I was so assertive that I didn't really recognize who it was who was doing the talking anymore. Do you know what I mean? I'm not sure. Explain you, it more. Well, so you have to, if, if, if it's kind of, you, if you give them an inch, they'll be taking a mile. They'll take all of that mile. So you need to, when you come up to a checkpoint or you come up to a border crossing or any kind of place where you might be dealing with officials, because officials are just the worst people in the world. Like everyone is wonderful in Africa except for the officials. So anyone in a, who's a police, customs, immigration, duans, that kind of thing, you, you have to deal with them. It, it, and again, it's kind of horses for courses, but quite a lot of the time you have to present yourself as knowing exactly what you're about. Or even if you don't, you need to pretend like you've done this a thousand times before, don't mess with me kind of thing. And you need to kind of come across as very assertive, almost hard-nosed. Because as soon as you roll over, that's when you might find yourself in a bit of trouble. Would your friends and family notice the, the change in you at that point? Uh, I, I, think, I think if they could be a fly on the wall, um, watching me just go about my daily day, I don't think they'd recognize me at all. I, I think if I was dealing with my family, I would still be the same old guy. But if they could watch me doing what I do, oh, like they they would not recognize that man at all. Like e even something as simple as I, you know how when you put dishes in a dishwasher and when they come out, they've sometimes got some stuff on them, like they've got a bit of stuff left over from the dishwasher. I won't drink out of that cup. I won't eat off that plate. 
Like I was OCD level, like not hygiene, but just I won't do that kind of thing. And to go from, you know, checking the date on the milk in the fridge to make sure it's not off and smelling it before I drink it to, you know, eating on benches with Africans out of the the same bowls and spoons and forks that they're using. It's a massive transformation, a huge move. We're going to take a short break and try and pay some bills. And then right afterwards, we're going to be back with a lot more. There's a lot more to this story. Luke is going to tell us how he managed to get his motorcycle through Africa without a carne. And then he's also on a beach where he's called to rescue a guy. And, well, things don't turn out like you'd think. And by the time I've gotten back out there again, he's drowned. Um, and it was, it was, so all you can see is the back of his head. Like I said, a lot more coming up. Stay with us. And now back to Luke Gelmi with the rest of his story. How did you manage to get away with the the carne problem? I mean, you're coming to borders. What do you do? Uh, <laughs> you pray. <laughs> you pray. Um, I each each border was a crapshoot when it came to to the carne. Um, what you'd go chasing is depending on the language of the country that you're going into would either be called a temporary import permit or it'd be called a laissez passer. So. Basically, those are two bits of, of paper that can get your bike into the country, through the country, and get it exported out the other side for a very low fee with no need for a carnet. The question is, are they going to be happy to write you up one? So what that usually involves is some talk around how much that's going to cost because, yes, it is something that you need to pay money for and – so as soon as it's something at a border that you need to pay money for, naturally they're going to try and add a bit of cream to the top of that, you know, to the top of that conversation. Like if it's going to be worth however many um, dollars, they're going to tack on, you know, quite a bit to that. So you're going to be haggling for that or, or, or on the other hand, they're just going to tell you that it can't be done, um, in which case you need to start talking, <laughs> Talking. Talking. You you need to sweet talk your way out of the out of out of those kind of problems. Like your hours, sometimes hours of just talking and talking and talking and giving like back and forth, arguing, debating, or even just sweet talking them, or, or just telling them, look at all the places I've been to on this motorbike and you'd kind of drag them out of the house and be like, have a look at the Enfield on this motorbike. Come on, give me some credit. Like, let's, let's get this working. And, um, you'd either, you'd either charm them or you'd, you'd convince them that it's not worth their time anymore and that you're going to be annoying for hours and hours and hours. 
and they just want to get you out of their face. And you mentioned when you're dealing with officials, you try to be very you know, stern or, or maybe making the point that you know what you're doing. Is that what you're doing at that point? Or do you sort of switch modes and all of a sudden become their buddy? Yeah, it, it, it's definitely you need to pick your battles. Yeah, so you got so to make a friend. If, if you've yeah, if, if they're smile, yeah, straight away, uh, as soon as you walk into any room, it would be massive smiles, like from me. I, I would I would walk in there like, this is the best day of my life. I'm so happy to be here and go around and shake everyone's hand in the whole room. Like shake everyone's hand, say, hi, how you doing? What's up? Like start and just start having conversations with the guys like, don't even start with flat out, I need this, or here's my papers, what are we going to do? You just start out by being their friend first, like being everyone's buddy. And um, if, if they like you, chances are they're going to want to help you out. But the temporary uh, permit, the temporary import permit, don't you have to pay money for that? Are you putting a bond up? You do, you do. Um, but it's, it's a very small amount, so maximum maximum spend you're looking at is something in the league of $10 or oh, even wow. less. So you like, don't even care if you don't get that back when you're going out, that's not even a big deal. Oh, it, you, you don't. So, um, it, with, with the temporary import permits and the laissez-passes that I was getting, I would kind of get to the other end of the border and hand them in. And the customs guys would look at me like, what do you want us to do with this? <laughs> like, why, why are you giving this to us? And I'd kind of be asking them like, here you go. Do you sign anything? Like, what are we supposed to do now? And they kind of look at me like, just go away, like get out kind of thing. So after a few borders of that, I kind of got the feeling that, you know, yes, you pay on the way in and it's pretty, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's cheap. It's very cheap. Sometimes you even get them for free. Um, and on the way out, you don't go anywhere near customs which is wonderful because it's one less person to speak of. And if someone says, you know, oh, you have to go to customs before you leave, say, yep, sure, we'll do. And then just go to immigration, get your stamp and then leave. Don't go. I, I never went anywhere near customs on the way out, which took me a long time to learn that I didn't have to do that. Well, as far as great stories and great experiences, you saved a man while you're on this trip. Are you calling that a great experience? <laughs> well, it would be for him. Think about it's, it. Luke, it, if you weren't uh, there, he wouldn't be here today, which he probably yeah, still is. That's true. But I still think it was the worst experience of both of our lives. And we just kind of, we both got very, very lucky that it worked out okay. Well, well but, let's talk about that. Just yeah. set the scene. Yeah, so it had been a long, long day in the leathers. And, and you know how when you have a stinking hot day on the motorbike, yeah, I was wearing all black, so a black helmet, black jacket, long Kevlar-lined jeans in Ghana, like in like nearly equatorial Africa, is just stinking hot. And so at the end of the day, come hell or high water, I was jumping in the ocean. And it turned out that that was a terrible decision. <laughs> yeah, so the the... The waves were enormous. It had been there'd been about two weeks of just violent storms, kind of whipping a frenzy up off the coast. And what had ended up happening was, you know, even after all that cleared off, it was still an enormous, enormous swell rolling in. And I'm from Australia. I can I can swim okay, but it's this was even still touch and go for me. 
But I've decided, you know what, I, I have to have this swim. I'll die if I don't have this swim. And so off we go, off I go, off the coast and out past the breakers. And it, it's, it's the kind of waves that it's like thunder, thunderous rolling thunder as the, um, as the waves kind of break. And, and I stayed out there for maybe a minute maximum before I was terrified and needed to come back in. But on, on the way back in, and I, as I was, I, I've tried to catch a wave in and totally butchered it and uh, nearly got my spine broken by one of these huge waves. I've popped out and noticed that there was somebody else in the water with me. And that was completely unexpected because even though it was a, it was a packed beach, it's a sat day, it's stinking hot, every single local is out on the sand, I was the only one stupid enough to get in the water. Hmm. So I was like, thank God. God, there's somebody else out here with me. Like I'm not alone in this. And, and straight away you feel so much safer. But so I've kind of gone swimming over in his direction. And then I've realized that he's waving to the shore and I'm like, is he just waving to his buddies? And then I kind of get a bit closer and realize that he's waving frantically for help. And I've gone, Oh Jesus, like he's drowning. He's, he's just drowning out here. And straight away you, you just get this adrenaline dump of here we go like this is going to be a nightmare like this was bad enough as it was with the waves as big as they are and I've, I've gone swimming over to him and I've got no idea what to do not really so I've, I've kind and, and I'm so I said I, I said to him I said are you okay I said are you okay mate and he's kind of giving me a look like I'm drowning you idiot <laughs> uh, <laughs> and this this guy couldn't it was a local lad and he couldn't swim in a bathtub. He, he was just clearly had no idea what he was doing out there. And, and it didn't make any sense to me because I'm like, why are you coming for a swim in this if you can't swim? That's just stupid. What are you doing? And, um, but, I, but there's no time for that kind of discussion. I've, I've grabbed him and tried to tow him into the shore. And um, he's just jumped all over me. Like As soon as I've grabbed him, he's, he's panicked. And I've panicked and he's, he's kind of crawling all over me, which is, is fair enough. Do you know what I mean? Like if you're in that sort of situation where you're drowning, you can't swim, what else are you going to do? It's kind of like someone yeah. throwing you a life raft. You're going you're gonna to clamber all over it, which wasn't great for me. So I'm, I'm kind of underwater and then a wave comes over the top and I'm like, okay, so now I'm drowning and I'm panicking and I, I just completely freak out, shove him off me and then swim back into shore. And um, I felt awful for it. Felt it was it was the most crushing. It was the worst I've ever felt about anything. And and what was worse is you know, here I was thinking I was this big tough guy doing this you know this big trip through Africa, and I'm a you know bit of a courageous, adventurous dude. But then as soon as it came time to actually do something that could be pretty courageous and pretty awesome, I just totally bailed on it. It was, it was, I kind of had this crushing moment and in the meantime, he's out there in the water and he's drowning and I'm just kind of on the shore like, oh my God, I'm the worst human, just the worst. And, um, we've, someone's come running down from the hotel, from the, from the beach resort, call it a beach, it wasn't really a beach resort, it was a place with hammocks. Um, he's come running down with a, um, surfboard. And I'm like, oh yeah, good. Go out and go out and get him. And he's given the surfboard to me. 
And I'm like, no, I don't, I don't want that. Mm. I don't want to go back out there again. I want, I just want to stay here and have this over with. I I didn't want the responsibility anymore, but he's so, so he's just given that to me and I've, I've been a douchebag and, and taken the time to put the leg rope on, which, and I'm just ticking the box of all the heinous things that I could possibly do that day. So um, while the guy's drowning out there, I'm putting the leg rope on and then woof, out I go with the surfboard. And by the time I've gotten back out there again, he's drowned. Um, and it was, it was, so all you can see is the back of his head. Wow. It, 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 it's sickening, sickening. And so I'm trying to pull him onto the board. In that time, a few other people who can't swim have tried to swim out there to save him. And now they're drowning as well. So they've jumped all over the surfboard. And we kind of, all of us try to haul him onto the, haul the body onto the, the surfboard. But it's just not working. He's so slippery and heavy and it's just so many waves and it's a, it was just not going well at all. It was, it was a nightmare. But eventually we've got him onto the surfboard. We've, we've, we've got him into the shore and I thought, you know, that's, that's it then. It's, it's done. Um, someone else will come and fix things. Someone else is going to come and fix this up. I, I don't want anything to do with it anymore. But then nobody, nobody came. Nobody came and said, you know, I'm a doctor or stand back. I'm going to help this guy and bring him back to life sort of thing. And I thought, I, 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 know, I know some CPR. Well, I, okay, so I've, 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 I've started on him, but uh, the, all I know was the DRABC. So the, the, D, the D, I'm like, what? And I can't even remember what they are. All I remember is DRABC. And um, I've gone, D, what's D, 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 D? And I've, okay, danger, danger, right? And um, I, I've, kind of, I've, I've kind of stepped my way through those as the steps. So the, f- the first one was danger, which is kind of like if you've just been hit by a car, make sure you're not going to get hit by another car sure. kind of thing. Electrical like, wires or whatever the case is. Yeah, no, no, yeah, you've got it. So it was, it was D, we, I, I moved on from that and I'm like, so on to R and I'm like, ah, what is R? And I'm like, R for resuscitation? What is, what does that even mean? Like I thought this whole thing was supposed to be a resuscitation and I'm, I'm panicking, like totally out of my mind panicking. And I've gone, no, R is for response. I've gone, right, I need to hit him. And so I've just wound up and given him a massive slap across the face and, and nothing happened. But the whole beach, everyone on the beach has just started laying into the guy, like kicks and punches. There's one guy punching him in the gut. you got another guy down the leg just giving him a dead <laughs> leg right in his thigh. Someone's standing up just hoofing him in the, in the, in the ribs. Because they see like, you do this and they think this yeah, is this. The, you're the authority. The, yeah, they were all looking at me for cues, like how do we help? And then they see the white guy give him like a big slap and they're like, right, let's bash him. Because <laughs> <laughs> everyone's screaming and wailing and going crazy. No one's kind of listening to me screaming at them all to stop. It took the longest time to get them to stop pummeling him. And I'm going, Jesus, well, right, what's next? So A for airways. I've gone, so which is that? And he, he, he's locked his jaw down. So I've, I've had to pry open his teeth with my, with my hands, which wasn't easy to do because I had to get my fingers between his teeth. But anyway, um, I've gone, right, breathing. So I've, I've done, this is the mouth to mouth bit. Like this is where it gets real. Like, mm-hmm. here we go. This is the, this is the Hollywood stuff. And so I've, <laughs> I've opened his mouth up and given him a, a, a big breath of air but I haven't tilted his head back and I haven't blocked his nose 
and I've got a big gob of snot right fly right out onto my cheek. Oh, yeah. It was disgusting, just just right onto the side of my face. Oh my god! I, I, I block his nose and get that right, and give him a cup. I wipe the snot off my face first, and then I give him a couple of breaths of air, and up goes his chest. And I start giving the so Dr. A, B, C. So now we're onto the the compression part. We're we're onto the you know onto the chest with the compressions, and um, so I, can, I start giving him compressions on his chest. But everyone else starts giving him compressions. They're, they're looking at me for tips on what to do again. And they're trying to help and they're giving him compressions in his stomach and someone's shoving him in the shoulder. And another guy down, that guy's giving him the dead leg down the end is now starting to give him compressions on his thigh. It was just insane. It was, and I couldn't get them to stop. By this stage, everyone's hysterical. Uh, but you know um, he's dead at this point. You know you're sort of, you're sort of wasting your time. Oh, the, the eyes are in the back of the head and it's kind of just flogging a dead horse. It's, it, but I kind of had to do it because it, in my mind, if he died, I, I didn't want him to live so that he could live. I wanted him to live so that I wouldn't have to deal with the guilt of leaving him to drown. It was mm-hmm. pure, pure. The, the, the number of selfish things that I did in, in 10 minutes, it's, it, I must have broken a world record. I, I, it still disgusts me. Um, so uh, he had to live. He, in, in my mind, he had to live because if he died, then this would be a massive tragedy for me, <laughs> not for him. And, and it, 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 it's this, this insane, insane way of thinking. It, uh, it, it disgusts me. Anyway, um, so I'm, I'm giving him the compressions. Then he starts to kind of convulse, like, and and it wasn't the guy compressing him on the leg down the end doing that. He, I could tell he was doing it himself. So I've flipped him like a table onto his side and he has just retched up buckets of water, like an inordinate amount of water. And then I've rolled him back again, given him a few more breaths and a few more compressions and then flipped him like a table again when he starts to convulse again. And he's brought up even more water and then he started to breathe and it was just wild. The beach has gone. If, If it hadn't gone crazy to that point, it just went absolutely to a whole nother level when he started breathing again. And it, it's the craziest thing. But that night I was, and I, I, I hate that I was, they, they turned me into the hero out of that because it was just pure selfish motivations the entire way through. But everyone at the bar that night was buying me drinks and I ended up pumping my stomach up that day as well. But much, much later, it was just, <laughs> it was, it was too much. All of it was just too much. It was the, the most full-on 10 minutes of my life. What have you learned? Yeah, I, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> yeah, go on. I know what you're going to ask. Go on. What have you learned from this? <laughs> uh, I, I learned that I'm a selfish pig. That's a, <laughs> but, but that's a good on. start. No, Luke, to, to be fair, that, that's not selfishness, what you're saying. That's, that's, that's survival. I mean, you anyone gets uh, out there in the it? water. Yeah, and you have someone else climb on top of you. I mean, that's it's a matter of survival. You know that you're probably both going to drown. The, the person that's drowning can't help themselves at all. They're going to tow you down. I think it's automatic. I think almost anyone would do it. Anyone sensible would push themselves away and, and head for shore. And I don't know if anyone you, would want to head back in. You make some very good points, Jim. You make some very good points. <laughs> it's true, though. I mean, it's, you know, and I don't know how many people would want to get on a surfboard, go back into those conditions and try and rescue someone who's clearly panicking. Uh, you know, it's that's, that's a tough situation. That's true. I, f- I feel like I should be lying back on a couch right now and you saying it's OK. Like, 
I absorb like it's <laughs> how do you really feel about that like yeah yeah no you you make some good points but at the same time I know I know that I could have he, he might have been doomed from the start but I know that I could have given a bit more out there in the ocean I I know I could have I I used to do back back in Australia I used to do a bit of free diving and I know how long I can hold my breath for, even oh, maybe not in a situation like that, but I could have done better. I could have done better, Jim, and it kills me. It still, it still eats me up a little bit. Well, I think there's one thing when you're prepared for something, like when you're free diving, that, that you're prepared for it and you're all set up. But when panic sets in, I know that it's, that, oh, that's yeah. a tough way it's, to manage, especially if it's something you're it, not trained for. And, and that is, that's true. You know, it's, but but pe- people have acted less, I reckon people have acted less selfishly in, um, in more extreme situations, like it was a real, um, I, I found out a lot about myself that day and it wasn't all pretty. And, and I think, and that was the thing about Africa as well as it's, you, you, you find out a lot about who you are when you, when you get to get away to that extent and really test yourself. And you, everyone kind of has this, oh, I know I certainly did had this idea that, you know, when, when one day, if, if I'm ever tested, I'll, I'll rise to the occasion. And, and <laughs> sometimes it's just not like that. It, it just, it, it, you, you find out things that you didn't want to know, but that's, you know, that's part of being a human, I think. If you look at the whole Darwin view of it, what I would describe as the Darwin view of it, the person that, that takes those extreme risks, puts themselves out there, to, to mm. save another uh, is also the person that may not survive, right? I mean, yeah, they may be a hero <laughs> yeah. in the end, but they may not survive. So, you know, the heroes don't it, get to pass on their genetics. Well, yeah, and, and from a from a from a um, you know an evolutionary standpoint, maybe the smartest you know smartest way to do it is is the way that you did it there, and the way probably most people would do it. Yeah, I think there was definitely a lot of that. Like, it was a lot of the caveman part of my brain saying. Just get out of there. Just yeah. get out of this situation right now, and um, and and that I, you you can overrule that, but that's a tough that's a tough beast to overrule. That that caveman in your brain saying, you know, sending you some very strong messages saying, get out of this situation right now. There's so much to your story. We're obviously not going to cover that all here today, yeah, but, yeah. but where does it end up? Where, you, where need, do you, you need a trilogy to do that. Yeah. Where, where do you end up in all of this? I, I end up getting all the way down to South Africa. So from Ghana, I've done maybe another 10 countries, like places like, um, like going through Nigeria. That was a blast. And then going through both the Congos and Gabon. Gabon's delightful. Gabon, and I'm, I'm not. I'm not joking about that. Gabon is awesome. If um, if any of your listeners get the chance to to go to Africa, you could do much worse than Gabon. Loved it there. But I've ended up um, riding all the way south. So it, it got things got tougher and tougher towards the end. It got harder and harder as time went on. And in the end, it actually became very, very difficult even to ride the bike. What, like, what do you mean, I tougher? Was, the, the, the bike was still fine, but I was, I was finding it very, very hard to get on the bike every day. Um, I'd, I'd been having panic attacks that I didn't know that I was having. I just thought I was a bit sick. Have you ever had a panic attack? I have not, but, but I'm aware oh. of them. I know what they are. It's, it's much like a heart attack. 
it's an it's an insane experience. Um, it, it's it is just yeah, a hard attack is is definitely putting it in the ballpark. And I used to hear that kind of stuff and think that that was you know over talking and a bit extreme. But you legitimately feel like you're dying. You and, and the the trouble with them is is that they it, it's such a real and it is it is real symptoms real. Um, physical things that it's how it's manifesting itself very very physically you, you think that you're just sick especially when you're in Africa and you're like yeah I've, I've probably eaten some things that I shouldn't have and now I'm getting crook with something quite exotic do you know what I mean mm, yeah and it, it does it, it mimics a heart attack it has a lot of the same symptoms yeah, so your your heart rate goes through the roof. You feel like blacking out. Uh, you you feel nauseous and sick, and then so there's this kind of really intense moment right at the start of one, and then it kind of trails off. But you feel weird for a very long time afterwards. But I I'm I can get quite pig headed with stuff like that. So instead of dealing with the problem, I just kind of had this really these really awful experiences and then just kept on going like nothing happened because it was kind of okay now and so as as time went on they got more and more frequent and i'm thinking well naturally i'm i'm getting sicker and sicker with something but there's no real doctors i can see so i just keep pushing on and by the time and this happened over the space of months and months and by the time i ended up getting down to south africa every day was this tiny hell of just and it shouldn't have been south africa objectively speaking was gorgeous all of all of the southern african countries are all really really nice places and i was kind of kicking myself that you know I, i'm never going to get to experience them the way that they should be because i'm just not okay right now i'm i thought it was a very physical illness and i'm like i need to find myself get myself to some western medicine and when I finally did in Namibia, um, I ran the gamut of blood tests with a doctor there, and he told me that physically I was ship-shape, A-OK, totally fine. And I'm like, oh, great, I'm going insane then. That was, <laughs> it was like... <laughs> I mean, we I, chuckle, I was, but I mean, yeah, that's horrible. Yeah, I, I, I wish that he had have said, um, yes, you're, you've got this illness, here's a tablet, you're not going to feel like this anymore. So to have him say that I was perfectly fine was kind of almost the worst thing that could happen. Um, but I, I ended up getting to South Africa, just grinding it out out of pure pig-headedness. And then as soon as I got home, I went and saw my doctor about it, but I think I already knew that it was an anxiety problem. And, and I always thought anxiety was for wimps. I always thought it was a bit of a soft thing, but it, it it takes living through something like that to really start to understand just how impossible a thing it is to live with um, and how it can just kind of come out of nowhere and start small and then before you know it ends up getting out of control. So what I was hoping, I, I've, I've started writing up the stories and um, I write the stories because I enjoy writing the stories firstly and, and secondly because I hope that someone can take these stories and, and take where it ends up and, um, and, and learn something out of it for themselves when it comes to these sort of issues. Cause I don't think we get to talk about it too much. As, as soon as I got back home, I went and saw my doctor and he said, you know, yes, um, 
he goes, I tend to agree with you because I'd started doing some research on it on the internet. Um, he said, yes, I agree with you that you've probably got an anxiety problem, but just in case, I'm going to recommend putting you through full brain scans just to be sure, which kind of gives you an idea for how severe the symptoms are that they could be uh, misdiagnosed as a brain problem. Like, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's, it's that, it's that full on, it's that severe. But as, as soon as they came back clear and the doctor said, yes, you just, it's just an anxiety problem. That was almost 90% of the battle was won right there because instead of being a, either very, very physically sick or B, I thought I was going mentally insane. I, I thought they were going to have to put me into an asylum kind of raving mad lunatic instead of both of those, it was something that was treatable, something that was surprisingly common and something that could be fixed and it wasn't going to kill me. And I think as soon as I heard those words, it was, the battle was almost won right there and then. How are you doing now? Really well, really well. Uh, I've, well, when I got back to Australia, I couldn't even drive down to the doctors without somebody else there to help me. Like I was a complete basket case. But I've gone from that to to finally getting some help about it. And now I live in Paris with my girlfriend here. And um, the, 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 it's, it's been kind of a double transformation back in the, 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 the direction of being able to be myself again. That's really good to hear. I mean, I mean, the whole thing, you, your life has completely changed around. As we've heard here, you started out as this chemical engineer, and now you're living in, in Paris with your girlfriend. It's just yeah, a, it's it's a huge change. Is, is it all for the better? I, um, I, I think it's all for the learning. I think um, I, I wouldn't be the person I am today if, if I hadn't have done this trip, obviously. But it's, uh, I, I, I don't think it's all for the better. I, I think it's, you, you can't always do things just because it's going to improve or, or, make, or make you better. Um, but it's, it, it has completely and utterly changed my life. I, I, I don't really recognize who I used to be before. And I, I'm quite proud of, of who I get to be today. I get to be that guy with the crazy stories now. I get to be that guy at the bar who, you know, when you're sharing a few drinks, I get to tell you a story about how I've got the official papers that say I'm a Togolese resident who, because I needed them to cross a border into the Democratic Republic of Congo. Who gets to say that kind of stuff? It's, it's crazy. It's crazy talk. And what, what did you I don't do? regret you, any of it. You conned them into the, in the fact that, or conned them into thinking that you were a resident? Yeah. So I, I, I conned the police into thinking that I, in Togo, in Lome, I conned the police into thinking that I was a resident there just so I could get the DRC visa because they required me to be a Togo resident to to get the visa at their embassy. And then when I went to the border, they demanded that I show them my resident permits thinking that I wasn't going to have them for Togo because, let's be honest, I don't look particularly Togolese. (laughs) And they they had no comeback when I pulled out the official residency papers (laughs) of Togo out of my pocket. I was ready for them. I was so ready for them to say that. 
And I just slapped it on their table with a big grin on my face and go, bang, I'm a Togolese resident. What are you going to say now? It was a beautiful moment. But who gets to say that kind of stuff? It's crazy. I, I wouldn't take back any of it. You know, and, and just when I asked that last question there about, um, you know, is, is it all for the better? I regret it at the moment I said better because there is no better, really. There, no, there isn't. No. There's, just, there's just different. But I, I think what I really wanted to say was, it like, is, is it a good direction? Do you feel good about, you know, about where you are now? And are you pleased with what you've done? Because, I mean, life's like that. You know, you make choices and you do mm. things and better, worse, who knows, right? It's just different. Yeah. I, I think you've hit the nail on the head right there. And I, I get a lot of satisfaction out of out of the trip, and I think I out of it I achieved exactly what I wanted, which is I, I started I started the trip off not having any idea what I was going to do, but I knew that I wanted to not have any regrets about you know being in a desk job for my whole life and looking back at, at what could have been. Like I, I feel like I've done done the most adventurous thing I possibly could. And, and it's almost, it's enough now. Like I, I feel like in the space of a, a, a year and a half, I've almost done enough in life. Like it, it's, and, and, and it, it's, it's crazy because anyone can do it. It, it just takes, you, you just got to see the hobo on the park bench and go, I'm out of here, you know? And see it through your eyes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just, you know, go, go and live the dream. But it's true though, isn't it? I mean, we can walk by things all the time and, and not really take it in a certain way. I mean, I, I used to refer to this as, and I still do as, as what I call the Volkswagen effect. You never know how many Volkswagens <laughs> there are until you actually own one. Because when you own one, all of a sudden they're <laughs> yes. everywhere. You see them on every corner. Well, it's the same yeah. as this, isn't it? You have to have your eyes sort of open and looking for something as you all were, you already primed you know, with reading uh, uh, Ted Simon's book and, and sort of thinking about life. And then you see this, yeah. this bomb who he might tell you a completely different story about what his life he's, is like. Oh, def- I'm sure he would. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> but he's, he's the Volkswagen, right? Yeah. He's, yeah, for he's sure. that. And, and, and if, if enough of the Volkswagens pop up, you might want to buy one. If, yeah. if, do you know what I mean? It's oh, not I guess for you've everybody. already bought one. But. I mean, it's not for everybody, of course. But I mean, it does. I mean, I think stories like yours reminds us all that, you know, life isn't or, or doesn't have to be necessarily what you're looking at. You know, you can you can do things. There, there's choices out there. Not oh. everybody has all the same choices. I get that. But there's choices. Totally. And, um, and it doesn't have to be. You, you don't have to have it. I, I think the other lesson that I, that I took out of it is that everyone talks a lot about planning and um, a, a lot of the people who, who you hear about doing these adventurous kind of stuff, they're, they're very organized and they've got things very much planned out and they know exactly what they want to achieve. They have their goals and they go and do them. And I, I kind of discovered that you don't have to have any of that you just all you have to do is start something and make sure you enjoy it um, make sure it's something that you're having fun with it doesn't have to be a grind from day one but the 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 moral of the story is that you who knows where you might end up you might end up in Paris writing books about it like it it's it, who knows what's going to happen next but it, it, first you need to put yourself kind of into that sort of tract like you need to put yourself into that lifestyle where you can go with the flow 
and just see where life takes you. Uh, and it's hard to get that from a chemical engineering desk job. So you just got to start. You've got to start. And you you might end up living the dream by accident. <laughs> to wrap things up here, I'm curious, what is your philosophy on the right bike? Oh, I think it's the same as your philosophy, isn't it? That um, the the bike the bike that you love is the bike. And, um, I, I couldn't have done it. I could not have done this Africa trip on the 800 GS. And I know that a lot of people will say, well, of course you can, you would have just, you know, done the trip cause it's, it's the right bike for the job. But looking back on the trip as a whole, even, even towards the end, when I, when I thought I was going insane, I was still having moments where th- these brief glimpses where I-, I would just look at the bike or I would hear the bike and it just put the biggest smile on my face. And I, I think that's what you have to have is it-, it doesn't matter if it's the right bike for the job. If it puts a smile on your face, it's the right bike for you. And as a team, you'll be able to get it done. And it'll be so much rewarding, so much more rewarding than if you got it done on the perfect bike that everybody else says was the right bike for the job. Do whatever it is that you want. And uh, e- even if it doesn't work out all perfectly, you'll, the, the satisfaction that you can get out of doing it on your dream bike, it's your ride. So go ride it. Do you have some top tips, which I, I think I almost smile when I ask this question of you because you're a guy who did this with no planning. <laughs> yeah. So do you have some top tips for someone else who's considering this? Well, first of all, like I was saying before, you've you got to start. So so make a start and, and you'll pick it up. You'll, you'll learn on the job. Um, don't be afraid of not knowing enough because you in this day and age, it's easy to learn things as you go. Um, so just make a start and get a visa card. <laughs> don't, don't buy a, ma- don't have a MasterCard. Get, honestly, that's, that's the only regret I have for the whole trip. It was that I didn't have a visa card from day one. That's the only thing. So the rest of it through all of the, <laughs> through, through all of the good times and all of the, let's be honest, pretty rough times. Yeah. I, I would suggest to somebody just make a start, make it up as you go along, have a visa credit card. You have a book you've written appropriately named Oblivious, West Africa <laughs> yeah. on a widely inappropriate Royal Enfield. Yeah, that's you, the one. That, that's available. You're, you're giving that away. I am giving that away. It's, um, I've, it, it's, it's been a, a labor of love to write it. Um, it's it's the <laughs> I, I it's something that I needed to write and and I've I've loved doing it and so I don't feel like it, it's something that I should be charging money for just because I, I got so much enjoyment out of out of writing it so I hope that everyone who who loves these kind of rides um, might be able to enjoy my book for nothing and it might be able to inspire some people to get out there and have a go at changing their lives themselves. And you're also writing another book now. It's, so it's a trilogy. It's the Oblivious Trilogy. Uh, book one is out there. It's, it's, it's in the world. People are reading it and loving it, which I've been really happy to, to see. Um, and books two and three are on the way. So 
they'll be coming soon. All up, it's a it's 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 quite the trilogy. It's it's a it's a massive story. Now, will this new book be free, or are you going to actually print this book, or how does it work? Uh, it depends. Um, right now, it's it's super easy for me to put the the books on the internet for for nothing. It costs me hardly anything to do that. You got to love modern technology. So right now they're all for free, but if I get picked up by a, a publisher, uh, I'm not sure I'll be able to avoid that temptation. <laughs> but we'll see. That's that's definitely something that hopefully we'll be seeing it in print soon if, if I can get picked up by a publisher, but we'll wait and see. It's all very new and exciting. Well, Luke, it was great to talk to you and, and just a, a wonderful story you have. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, Jim. That was Luke Gelmy, and uh, you can find out more about Luke at his website, shotsfromthebar.com. And you can get his book, you can get his free uh, ebook about this story here that you just heard at www.obliviousthebook.com. And I would highly encourage you to go read it. There's a lot of profanity in his writing, but it's quite funny, and it's, uh, it's the full story. And, of course, both those links will be in our show notes. The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. And the Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll fill your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. www.cyclepump.com Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system and of course green chili adventure gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding www.greenchiliadv.com Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, who you hardly ever hear from, who works away in the background, and of course, to you, the listener. Thank you very much. Well, if you like what we're doing here and you want to help the show out, we do build the show on a model of advertising plus some donations to make the whole thing work out. So if you want to drop by our website and click on the donate button, have a look at what we have to offer there. Anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent back at you. Anything $50 or more is going to get you a mention on our Raw show. And speaking of Raw show, we have that other show. If you haven't heard of it, it's called ARR Raw. It's different than this one. It's roundtable discussions about motorcycle travel. We've got a whole group of people there. We've got Sam Manicom, Graham Field, Grant Johnson, Shirley Hardy Ricks, and Brian Ricks and myself. We get on there once a month. The next one is going to be coming out. should be out next week. So you have to subscribe separately. It doesn't cost anything, of course, same as this show. You can just go and click on the subscribe button through iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. See you next week. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio, and this is Tiffany Coates on the line from Land's End in England. (laughs) 